Try not to think about your stock. Try not to think about your shareholders for a moment. Try and think beyond the generic statements that your wonderful communications team are putting out to protect your brand. And just think about your black employees and your teams in your workforce and what you can do, you specifically can do personally to help them. And yes, by all means, of course, donate to as many Black Lives Matter organizations as you can. You know, funding is so important. Um, And, you know, announce your support by all means, if that helps you to make, if that helps to make you feel better. But I feel like this is a lot less political than you realize. And this is a lot more about being human. We need you to just be human. A considerable number of your workforce are in pain right now. So official policies and procedures aside, what are you going to do about it? This is Crisis Cast 2020 with me, Toby Goodman, a podcast where I get timely wisdom from experts in life and business. These guests will answer my five questions, sharing wisdom and insights to help you and me get through this global shitstorm. Today on Crisis Cast 2020, Kimberly J, choreographer of dance turned choreographer of business moves that help creative professionals get paid what they are worth. Kimberly joins me to talk about her life since March, the work she's been doing for Black Lives Matter, and her transition away from consulting gigs to a more structured coaching offer underpinned by the Book Yourself Solid method. Before we start the show, I have something for you if you identify as pod curious. It's perfect for you if you're an expert, consultant or business owner. Maybe you're wondering if podcasting is worth the effort, especially now, or perhaps you've tried podcasting in the past but have been disappointed with the results. In this free guide, Podstar, I'll share the exact seven steps we use to help publish over 2,000 podcasts each month. To get instant access, go to podcastnetworksolutions.com. Emily J, welcome to Crisis Cast 2020. Thanks for joining me. Toby, I am delighted to be here. Thank you. So you're in the far east of England. <laughs> Where exactly <laughs> Where exactly are you? I feel I feel like I sort of know. Also known as the back end of nowhere. I am in West Norfolk in a sleepy little town called Downham Market. Beautiful. So I've been there a few times as a youngster. What's it been like on a local level, pandemic wise? Um, I mean, we, the town was sleepy enough to begin with. So <laughs> there's, there's not been a huge difference in terms of the entire town locking down. Um, I think because it's, there's quite a big retirement community here, we've had to be extra careful in terms of protecting our elderly um, and just being aware and conscious and, you know, doing what we can to make sure we help everybody. I think that's been the biggest thing that's come out of it for Downham Market specifically, or these areas in West Norfolk specifically. Um, But it feels like locally, everybody's rather enjoyed having a little bit of downtime and a little bit of rest time, Um, me included. 
So actually, it's not been the crisis for us, I don't think, that it might have been for others across the country. Yeah, but you've been dealing with a number of um, personal juggling things as a parent and businesswoman and all of that stuff. So how did it unfold? Because we've got a bit of perspective now, but when we first met, you were telling me all sorts of stories about... (laughs) how you were managing a childcare situation, you were helping someone out who was having to fly somewhere else and stuff. So, so how did that, how did that unfold? And you know, what, what was the, what's been the impact of your daily routine? Yeah. So, I mean, when everything kind of went South in March, um, and of course I have a son, he's nine years old, so he's not going to school anymore. We had this, these, you know, wonderful hopes and dreams of being able to homeschool our son. Um, and whilst that worked for the first few weeks, it just got to a point where, you know, please just wake up, brush your teeth and put a pair of shorts on. And we've won today. <laughs> you know, it was that kind of, it was that kind of thing. Um, so in terms of, you know, keeping up with his schooling, it's been, I want to say relatively difficult. It has been difficult. Um, but it just, it, it went to not being the priority that I thought it would be because I also assumed that whilst he would be home from school, I'd very easily be able to continue with my work because, you know, having a nine-year-old home from school, I mean, it's easy just to sit him down and give him some work and just let him, but no, of course it's mom, what's this mom, what's going on here? Mom, I'm hungry. Mom, I need a snack. Mom, is it dinner time yet? You know, and it's just like, okay, we're just going to have to pause the work because I just need to focus on family. And it's been a long time since I've done that. I am very much the kind of person who, you know, I thrive on being busy at work. And the moment I have that downtime to spend with my family, I almost feel a bit guilty. I almost feel like, well, surely I should be doing something right now to work a little bit harder or to to make a little bit more money or to just do something for the security of my family. It's always been there in the back of my mind. So this pandemic forced me to say, right, pause on the work because you just can't do it and focus on what is right in front of you. Focus on who needs you right now, which is my son and my husband, of course. Um, so yeah, homeschooling started out wonderfully, then went to pot. So, but the weather was incredible anyway. So my son spent a, you know, a ton of time outside. We're lucky enough to live in an area where there's lots of green space. Um, so he could run around like a little puppy. Um, and then, you know, I tried to keep up with my work in consultancy. But of course, all the big companies that I was working with were closing down as well. I had some plans. We were sort of preparing some plans to do some work on the Olympics this year. So at the start of this year, I was supposed to be doing a little bit of work with um, one of the companies that I work with on the Tokyo Olympics in preparation for the Paris Olympics. That just, you know, it's not happening now. Of course, it's not happening, not until next year, at least. But what it allowed me to do at that point was to really think about what I wanted to do. Because I realized that I didn't really want to be consulting. I didn't really want to do work that was determined by other people in terms of like their scheduling and when they had deadlines. And for the longest time, you know, I've been working in this kind of creative consultancy now for, um, I don't know, the best part of about seven years. And I realized it's just, it doesn't fulfill me. It's not what I want anymore. I like the idea of being a little bit more free in terms of what I do. Um, 
And one of the things that's always been with me and stayed with me, you know, coming from a background, even as a choreographer and a dance teacher and a performer myself, was this idea of building other people so that they could show up on stage and look incredible. And that's something I know I do really well. And I realized during this pandemic, when I had a moment just to slow down and stop, that is what I want to be doing. I want to be working with people to help them to show up and do wonderful things. It wasn't necessarily for me anymore. I don't, you know, I'm not bothered about the big name brands. I'm not bothered about the huge projects that I could potentially work on. I'm bothered about helping other people now get in a position where they can access those opportunities. And so during this pandemic, essentially my entire business changed. And I decided that from that point on, I was going to become a coach. And I've been coaching now for a few years, but it's always just been on the back burner. My core income has come from my consultancy work. Coaching income has been there, but it's just been there, you know, almost for fun because, you know, I enjoy coaching. It was something that it felt like fun when I did it. It didn't feel like a proper job. <laughs> um, and then all of a sudden I just had this opportunity to say, do you know what, put everything down and focus on coaching and just see what you can do with it. Um, and that is exactly where we are right now um, in terms of what I do. Now, in the midst of all that, we ended up with a few things happening around the world beyond our pandemic. Um, and that was the major Black Lives Matter movement that took place end of May, throughout June, July, August, now in September. And it will continue, I imagine, for quite some time. And whilst I never considered myself to be an activist in that sense, I found myself almost being um, not necessarily pulled into it. Um, it wasn't that I was pulled into it, but I found myself being able to help the cause. And again, it's something that I did quite accidentally. And what had happened was I'd noticed that a lot of people, especially those who were considered leaders in business, people we looked up to in business, um, during sort of, you know, the point of the death of George Floyd and the point where everything just went absolutely crazy on social media, um, I noticed that they were either completely silent. These leaders were either completely silent on the Black Lives Matter issue um, or they were putting out perfectly crafted PR statements that actually didn't state anything. So. I shortly found out that this was happening because these leaders didn't know what to say or even how to say it. So they were falling back on this fear um, and just not doing anything about it. When in actual fact, we needed these people in these positions of power uh, to be able to stand up and say something to help what was happening. Um, so I just, I, Open my calendar up very quickly, just, you know, thinking maybe one or two people might get in touch. Um, and I put a message out on Instagram that basically said, look, get in touch. If you want to have a call with someone who might be able to help you to communicate with your black employees so that you can actually help them. So no judgment, just an informal call. I'm happy to speak with you, you know, if you just need that little bit of additional help. And I did this, you know, beginning of June when I really noticed that we were, you know, lots of people were getting the messaging wrong. By the end of June, I'd already had well over a hundred calls 
with, you know, business leaders, C-suite executives, you know, really high profile people at big name companies. To be honest, I have no idea how they even found me, some of these people, because I had no connections to them, but they did find me. Um, And they were explaining that they were terrified of having any kind of conversation around the Black Lives Matter movement professionally. Um, They were really worried about it. And so everything I planned, I, you know, this coaching stuff that I wanted to do and everything that kind of, again, fell by the wayside. We're going to put that to one side because now my focus is entirely on Black Lives Matter movement and how I can help these leaders to just be helpful. Um, The majority of the conversations I was having, they were, you know, with, you know, middle-aged, white, C-suite executives, males, um, most of them. Uh, And they'd get on the phone and they'd say, Kim, I'm so angry. I'm horrified about what's happened. You know, I can't believe this is happening in 2020. Those law enforcement officers, you know, they need life sentences. And, And I just watched... 13th by Ava DuVernay and now I'm even angrier and and you know what I'm going to donate as much as I can to all of these Black Lives Matter charities um something needs to be done about this (laughs) you know and I'd listen of course I'd listen to this and I'd just you know sort of gently say listen thank you for sharing your feelings with me but unfortunately this isn't about how you feel Um, Of course, the images that you're seeing um, and the stories that you're being told on your news feeds and on your television screens, they are absolutely horrific. And they're going to stir up these emotions, whether you fall into the Black Lives Matter camp or otherwise. However, now we're talking about what we're talking about now is, is your acceptance of your privilege and the actions that you can take um, to be able to level the playing field, especially in your organization. Um, So being angry, having, you know, rage and feeling hurt or feeling sad. I get that you have these emotions, but unfortunately they do nothing to help the situation. So now as a powerful leader in the position that you're in, it's about how you can take action and how you can create this change. And, you know, If you're too busy being angry, you can't help anybody who needs you. Biochemically, (laughs) you can't help anybody who needs you. Your body won't let you. It won't let you think clearly. You know, it won't let you think rationally when your emotions are just high. So what we need to do is just take a moment to feel what you're feeling. You know, you have these emotions and fine. Just, you know, feel what you have. And then remember that you can actually do something about this. So compartmentalize what you're feeling as soon as possible. And then think about what you can do on a human level to create the change. So try not to think about your stock. Try not to think about your shareholders for a moment. Try and think beyond the generic statements that your wonderful communications team are putting out to protect your brand and just. Think about your black employees and your teams in your workforce and what you can do, you specifically can do personally to help them. And yes, by all means, of course, donate to as many Black Lives Matter organizations as you can. You know, funding is so important. Um, And, you know, announce your support by all means, if that helps you to make, if that helps to make you feel better. But 
I feel like this is a lot less political than you realize. And this is a lot more about being human. We need you to just be human. A considerable number of your workforce are in pain right now. So official policies and procedures aside, what are you going to do about it? And if you're still not sure, then I suggest you pick up the phone and you call each of them individually and you ask them, what can I do to support you? What do you need from me to heal? You know, and this isn't a sort of, oh, please tell me your story, dear black employees, so that I can feel outrage on your behalf and I can feel, you know, anger for you. No, this is a, I recognize that I am in a privileged position and I have the ability to change things for you. I understand that I'm not here to rescue you, but I want to know what actions that I need to take as a leader, as your leader, to just lessen the pain. That's the conversation that you want to be having. And then once you've said that, it's really important that you just shut up and listen. <laughs> you know, because that's also a big issue um, around, the, around leaders, you know, is don't get defensive. Don't try and justify decisions that were made in your company in the past. You know, just listen, be a helpful human being. That's all we need you to do as a leader in a privileged position. And you'll make such a difference, I promise you. And honestly, Toby, I had so many of these conversations. It just, you know, it just turned into like my entire focus was on helping these people to help their teams and to remember to be human first. And, you know, part of me was honored to be confided in and to be you know to be the person that they came forward to speak to about this and you know because for a lot of them of course you know I I explain that it's completely confidential and of course I'm not going to talk about who you are and what you do um so I felt privileged to be in that position but at the same time a small part of me was kind of heartbroken that you almost have to tell these people who are in these huge positions of power please be human that's all we need you to do just need you to be a human being that's it you know so yeah again everything that I was doing prior to June ended up on the back burner and for June July and part of August I was there as essentially a Black Lives Matter communications coach I suppose (laughs) that's what I was doing Um, and it wasn't until mid-August that I could finally switch back and say yay okay Back to my program. Now let's focus on what this thing is. And so, yeah, here we are in September. Now, finally starting to launch my actual group coaching program, which is a business thing, (laughs) you know? So it's not a life coaching thing. It's not an NLP thing. It's just, I do business. That's what I do. Um, So, yeah. (laughs) So what kind of results were you seeing uh, as well, what were the results of those conversations? Did you, did you get people coming back to you saying that was super helpful or, you know, the, what what was the next step for those people once they've got through the outrage? Interestingly, mixed results. So everybody I spoke to said that it felt, you know, super helpful, that they now understood what they needed to do to create change. And I, you know, I was delighted with that. It was brilliant. Um, for quite a few of them, 
I personally know lower level employees in their organizations. So I was able, without them realizing, to connect with those employees and just say, hey, you know, what, is, what have your management team done to, you know, to go through this, to help you, to support you? What have they said? And unfortunately, quite a few of them said, nothing. We've had nothing. The same messaging that they put out publicly is the same messaging that we get internally. The fact that they are, you know, completely against, you know, any form of racism and that they'll do what they can to ensure that they have, you know, the, the, they set up these support systems within the company. But for me personally, as, as an employee, I've not felt any of that. I've not had any of that. Um, so I would say that for sort of a, a good third of the people I spoke to, where I was able to communicate with their teams at a lower level, they took no action. Even though on the phone to me, they sort of said, hey, oh, this is fantastic. I get it. I'm going to do it. This is what it's about. We're going to push forward. It's, you know, I'm, I'm just, I feel like I understand how I can help. And nothing happened. Tumbleweed, unfortunately. Um, for the other two thirds, um, we've had, you know, some incredible initiatives happening within some organizations where they've, you know, they've just put, you know, not only support systems in place, um, but also just the recognition and being able to take a step off of their podium for a moment and just say, yes, I'm human too. And I get it. And I want to do what I can to help. And I am sorry. You know, just having somebody at that level say, I am sorry, means so, so much, you know. Um, so, yeah, there's the majority, I think, of the conversations I had resulted in positive change. It's just almost, you know, it's a little bit deflating when you realize that the people on the phone would say to you, yes, I get it, Kim. All right, let's do this. All right. And you realize done nothing, have you? Not a thing. You've just waited for the whole thing to die down and you're hoping that this isn't addressed again and we can just sweep it under the rug. But, you know, again, I'm calling on people to be human and that's exactly what human beings do. So it's, it swings and roundabouts in a sense, unfortunately. Yeah. Well, thanks for sharing that because, you know, it's been, I've had private conversations about it and I've not really had a, a public opportunity on a podcast to, to talk mm -hmm. to someone about it. Um, who's in your position and, yeah, it's, uh, you know, I'm, I'm so grateful to have that. So thank you. Um, so, so, there's <laughs> so much we could talk about off the back of this. Um, yeah. so tell me about, um, so, so, so that, that came up after the, after the COVID thing, it's just been bonkers. So now what's the focus of the coaching and, and how's that manifested? Cause we're both certified. Book yourself solid coaches, and it's really exciting. And I've been using the methodology for a long time, anyway. So I'm really happy to to be in. Um, and so that's kind of how we met. So so how's it coming out? We all know that the well, we don't all know, but you and I know that it's all about target market, single biggest result at the top end. So tell me a little bit more about how you're positioning yourself as a as a coach today absolutely so i have created using the framework of book yourself solid and with a little bit of expansion on the original framework i've created a program called more clients mastery um, and i've created this program essentially for people like me 
ambitious consultants in arts and media industries who want to book more clients, who want to charge higher rates and just want to build a remarkable reputation in their industry. Now, arts and media industries are very well known <laughs> for struggling when it comes to understanding the business, not only the business itself in, you know, in terms of how to monetize what they do, but also how to, how to create or how to build the authority, how to create the credibility and how to sell themselves in a way that just doesn't feel like super sleazy car salesman. Everybody sort of assumes that that's way, the, uh, the avenue you have to go down in order to be successful if you're going to be in business. And also there's this, there's this idea that if you're a creative, you're not allowed to be business-minded. You shouldn't be business-minded. You should, you know, if you're creative, you, you're, you know, you're free thinking and you're about the art and you love what you do. So, you know, if you get paid for it, you're lucky. And if you don't, eh, whatever, you, you've still spent your day doing the thing that you love. So you should be grateful for that. How do you, do, how do you deal with that? Because I've spent my life as well, <laughs> surrounded by hugely technically talented people whose mindset around marketing and actually putting food on the table and perhaps, you know, having a nice home to live in has, has been almost like you're a sellout, you know, you're a sellout. Mm -hmm. If, if you're making money doing this thing, then you, you know, you sold out, not everyone, but certainly um, from the sort of edges of, um, you know the the jazz guys <laughs> I would say they're a great they're a great they're a great example um of, of people who are you know very very far left in everything they do um again you know generalizing massively of course but there's there's yeah there's definitely there's been some strange vibes that I've had uh, and actually when throughout the this pandemic uh, a jazz musician called Keith Tippett died who is um from Bristol and he was a real leading free improviser um world-class amazing guy I spent a lot of time with him when I was young and he was so disappointed in me when he met me at you know a few years into me working professionally doing theater gigs and I had a nice car and he was he was pissed like he was <laughs> he was really angry um that I'd sold out and I'd started playing commercial music um, which is, which is, you know, he was all about being being hungry and creating art and stuff. And I don't know, you know, I struggle because yeah. I, I want nice things as well. So, mm -hmm. how do you have that conversation? Because there's that guilt about that that creative people have about making money, but also they're always we're always having a conversation about not being paid what we deserve. And I'll tell you <laughs> yeah. another, and I'll be I'll tell you another story that is incredible is that someone phoned me to do a gig for the first time since March, right? I haven't played at all. And I miss playing music and I'm happy, you know, I'm so happy when I do it. Someone phoned me for a gig. She said, oh, it's at a local, it's just at the local pub down the road. Can you come and do it? It's for an hour on Saturday. And um, I was like, yeah, great. You know, I was just happy to play. And then she said, oh, it's, we're playing for tips, if that's okay, just to play. And I'm like, uh, I can't. I, I I can't do that. Like I, I'll come and play for nothing to have a mm. play, but I'm not playing for tips. Like I live in a, you know, I live in a London suburb. People have got money here, 
and they're going to go to the gastro pub and pay big money for the meal. And you're letting the owner of the gastro said gastro pub let you play for tips because you're just, they're doing the whole conversation about, well, isn't it just great to do what you love doing? Hmm. And the, the woman who called me, she's a mum, you know, as well. She's, she's not, um, she has to, she has to pay away, you know, but she, it's almost like she just thinks that that's how it is. And now yeah. I feel like a big time asshole because I've gone, listen, you know, I really miss playing, but I cannot, I will not play for tips. Like I haven't done 25 yeah. years of what I've done to, to push my money, money down to, to like basically begging. Like I can't yeah. do it. And you're devaluing yeah. the industry and all of that. Yeah. So how do you start? I've got, Again, you know, I could I could go on, but how do you actually help good creative people get clarity around that? Because I would love to hear your thoughts on that. <laughs> oh wow. So yeah, of course, this is industry-wide and has been for many, many years. Um, this idea that, of course, because you love what you do, you shouldn't necessarily be paid for it or be paid above what the average person values your art to be worth. And often that value comes from the amount of time that you spend doing it. So if you're a musician, they'll say, well, if you're only playing for an hour, I only have to pay, pay you for an hour. I'm not paying you for the 25 years that you've spent learning to be incredible at music. I'm just paying you to turn up for an hour. So <laughs> you know, there's no more conversation to be had. So there's a lot of work to do around the idea of value. But to begin with, I always start the conversation off with um, a quote that came from Walt Disney. And Walt Disney always said, we don't make cartoons to make money. We make money to make cartoons. The idea being that the more money they had, the bigger budgets they had, the better their art would be. The more that they could do with it, the more that they could distribute it, you know, the better, the, just the greater the overall product would be. So first it's about changing your perception, your belief around what money does and why money exists. Because for a lot of artists, yes, there is that guilt if you think, well, actually, I want to live in a nice house or I want a nice car. Or I want spending money. Or I want a holiday. You know, I want to be able to have that, that financial freedom, in a sense, um, to support myself, my family, everybody around me. Um, but at the same time, you know, you many artists of course have that block and they have that guilt and they're feeling like okay I, I can't do this because the industry says that you know we're not supposed to charge more than this or I shouldn't do more than this or because I'm not as well known as such and such there's no way I can charge the same sort of rate but I always ask the question and I say well if actually if money was no object if you had as much budget as you needed to what kind of art could you create then and what could you do with it and usually at that point, we get wonderful conversations about, well, wow, you know, if I didn't have to think about the bills, I'd do this and I'd create that. And I'd say to them, okay, so why are we not building a business that allows you to create that art, that allows you to be that kind of creative in the industry? Do you understand how that helps not only the artists, the arts and media industries as a whole, but in plenty of other industries around it? Do you, you know, can you, can you see the sort of value you can add to those industries if you just have the space and opportunity to do what you're greatest at? By you saying, A, I'm either going to accept a lower rate or I'm not going to negotiate my rate. You're basically saying, I'm happy to stifle my creativity because the industry says so. 
And we can't be happy with that anymore. That has to change because we need artists to be artists. We need creatives to be creatives. We need those in media that have the skills to communicate with, you know, people across the globe. We need you firing on all cylinders and doing your best work. To do that, you are going to need money. You are going to need a budget. So let's work to get that budget. We're going to, you know, and every time somebody says uh, you feel like someone's devaluing your work or offering you something that's below what you'd like to work at, I want you to think about, is this actually going to help me to do my best work? Can I be the best possible creative based on this budget? And if the answer is no, then unfortunately you're going to say to the person offering, I'm really sorry, but no, I cannot accept your budget. This is where it begins. So that is kind of how the whole conversation starts. It's that understanding of it's not about the external belief, you know, and it's more about what do you need personally to do great things to get yourself and your skills out there to everybody. And the no's get easier, right? The no's get so much easier. In fact, you look forward to them. Yeah. I look forward to them. I enjoy saying no to people. And now more than ever. Because now that I've come away from the creative side of it and, the, you know, the, doing the, the creative and the consultancy myself, when people, you know, step forward and say, hey, I've got this brief. This is the sort of thing. This is a budget. And I love just going, no, unfortunately, I didn't know. And even though often they might, you know, nowadays they'll, they'll offer me budgets that are, you know, I, years ago, I would have looked at those budgets and screamed. <laughs> I would have been delighted with them. Actually, even though the budgets are great, I still don't feel I can do my best work because it's not where I want to be. It's not what I want to be doing. My best work now happens by building other people. And this isn't it. So I'm happy to say no to a budget and I'll, I'll help where I can and refer, you know, people and say, Hey, I can't do it. You know, but this person could be great. And I, I love being able to refer people, but it's just every time you get to say no, it does. You feel just that little bit more fortified in terms of your vision and your goals and what it is that you want to do. And that's such an important part of running a business. You really have to be behind it. Yeah. Agreed. Agreed. Yeah. It's been a, it's been a good, it's been a good few no's from me over the last few months. <laughs> and, and the first, the first few times have been scary because there's still been that, what if this COVID thing's really going to, you know, take all the money out and am I being, yeah. yeah oh, anyway. Good. But then there's, there's also that idea that, you know, if you say yes to something that you're just not 100% about, you end up losing opportunities that otherwise might have entered your, you know, arena at that point. So if you, you know, there was a point in my life where I was saying yes quite a bit to working with quite a few clients and quite a few companies. And I was finding that I was losing, you know, bigger or more fulfilling opportunities I would have liked to have taken because I was just tied up with, you know, the rubbish I'd said yes to. So it's about that. It's about clearing the space as well. Yeah. And it's the space either side of those consulting calls as well, right? Because you take yeah. that, you take that stuff in your head around with you, especially if you're dealing with a hard client. That yeah. I've found, you know, am I, am I just not good enough for this person or you know, because actually it turns out it's a bad fit and you weren't supposed yeah. to be working with that person. But, you know, then you end up over delivering and undercharging and, you know, they don't get it. And it's, oh, it can be horrible, yeah. can't it? So, so yeah, I suppose it's been good to have those experiences. I don't intend to have any more of them. Um, <laughs> but it, it's useful. It's useful to, do you think everyone has to go through it a bit or? I do. 
Yeah. I, re- I, I really do. Um, in the past, I've had, you know, people who've approached me for coaching and have never, they've sort of come straight out of wherever they've trained um, creatively, whether that be art design school, fashion school, dance school, you know, drama school, whatever, and said, right, I'm ready to go into the industry now. So I need you to coach me to make sure that I'm, and part of me always thinks you need a couple of years of just the hard knocks getting your ass kicked yeah Yeah. I need you to know what that feels like otherwise the information that I give you you're not going to value it you're not going to understand it you're not going to realize why it's important so I need you to go away for a few years by all means come back to me if you'd like to um but I need you to do this yourself think about what you want think about your goals think about you know and then just go out and just give it a shot and see what happens see who you meet see how it works um and then in a couple of years maybe we should have a catch-up conversation and just see how you've got on because everything that I have learned in life, of course, has come from the experiences that I've had being knocked around in the industries that I've worked in. Um, you know, as you know, Toby, the entertainment industry is absolutely bananas. It's just cutthroat beyond belief and everything is going to get knocked in that industry. So it's not even about your, your credibility or, you know, your authority in that industry. It it can physically be about, you know, the color of your hair or, you know, how wide your thighs are, or it's, it's just, you know, it's not even just about who you are professionally. It's who you are personally that gets knocked around as well. I've I've seen those briefs. I've seen those briefs (laughs) for for dancers. I won't mention, I wonder if you know the woman I'm going to tell you about after this, but one of the first jobs um, I got a commercial job. Um, I was like 20. So I think it was a TV thing. And there was a brief on the table and she said, look at this. She was outraged, this agent. And it was for dancers. And it was, I want three, I want three black girls and three white girls. Um, black girls can have piercings, no tattoos. White girls can have tattoos, no piercings. <laughs> it's like, whoa, <laughs> that was like, mm, you know, in the nineties, but yeah. thinking shit it's really tough like to and having just seen women especially the the female dancers and 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 just to watch what the industry does to them particularly because the careers are short and brutal yeah. absolutely brutal so yeah that's again a different conversation perhaps but i it think is, i think i think people come people just sort of going back to my original thought that that some some people that I know and, and I'm quite close to would say that their art and their creativity only really comes out when they are super up against it and super, you know, struggling. That's when the that's when the muse comes or whatever, you know. So mm-hmm. so I, I suppose then maybe the fear is that they'll if they are waking up in that four poster bed uh, every day, then their creativity they won't be as hungry for it. Do you think that's, is that something that you've come up against with, with people? Um, I wonder sometimes if that is about, it's less about their ability to control when they're creative and more again about their ability of how they're perceived by the industry. Um, 
we love to tell those stories where you know we're up against it and there's a there's this challenge or there's this huge cavern we have to cross and it's you know it's that thing where you talk to people and you say you know how how's things going how's business and they're like oh I'm so busy it's crazy like I'm just you know it's it's just it, it's so bonkers and in the back of your mind you think well that's not necessarily a good thing you shouldn't be so busy to a point where it's you know it's draining you and you you know you don't feel comfortable about it in an ideal world you want to have enough clients of course you do but you also need to be able to take the time for yourself and I feel like artists are the worst for doing that they love being able to tell you about their latest challenge or the latest issue that they're having or the thing that they're overcoming almost like they're justifying it within their own mind that again they're being real and true to their art and who they are and what they do you know and again I'm you know I'd say that if you are up if you need you know deadlines or you need to be up against it in order to create art then by all means there are clients you can work for um and and work that you can do that gives you those parameters where you've got to think right let's you know get our head around this and, and get it right but at the same time your income shouldn't have to suffer Ideally, your mental health shouldn't have to suffer, though your family shouldn't really have to suffer. Um, you know, there are ways in which you can put these boundaries in place so that you do your best work um, and still you can live a comfortable life. And it's about trying to find that balance, because I wonder if those people who are saying, no, I need to be up against it because that's when I thrive. I wonder if they've ever tried it on the other side. <laughs> have you ever actually had a job where you've had space, you know, and time to really create and budget? And just, you know, nothing but peace around you to just really think those deep thoughts that, you know, turn into incredible work. Have you ever had that? I'm willing to bet that, you know, a majority of them have never had it. I've never felt it. Don't know what it's like. But they're so used to just being up against it and delivering, being up against it and delivering, because that is, again, the sort of thing you do as an artist. You know, as you know, even in, you know, performing arts, you get, you're into rehearsals and, you know, as dancers, we always knew, right, we've, you've got a show Saturday, you've got Thursday, Friday, you've got 40 minutes of choreography to learn and get right and perfect. Always up against it. Like everybody who's ever given me a brief, I think in, in every facet of my artistic career, as a dancer, as an animator, with everything that I've done, um, it's always been, we needed it yesterday or it needed to be done you know there's never any pre-planning that happens the artists are the last to know when the project has been greenlit and we need you to go the artists are rarely consulted in terms of where the creative of this project is going usually there is a creative director and they'll finally call you up and say kim yeah the project's it's a go we've made we've done it here's the brief just go and you've got 48 hours you're like i've had no input i've had nothing but i'll deliver because it's what i do and I kind of feel like I need to because I want to get paid at the end of it and I need more work and I just need to keep those relationships going. But it's a vicious cycle. You know, we're constantly delivering, trying to do our best work, trying to grab onto those opportunities and just keep those relationships with our, our, our employers or the, you know, our clients solid just to feel safe. And I think we get into that mindset that in order to feel safe, you must be struggling. And it's not the case. So what are the red lines that you've drawn around what you've done? You will not, you know, turn a project around in 48 hours anymore. I imagine you will not work with people who haven't been in the industry for 
less than <laughs> X years? Like, do you have a, a sort of checklist in your mind as to like, this is who I'm for, this is exactly who I'm not for? What, what does that look like? Yes, yes. Um, so yeah, as I said, you know, I, I won't work with anybody that either hasn't been in the industry or hasn't done the job that they are working towards doing or the thing that they're working towards doing, the business that they're working towards growing, um, hasn't been involved in it for at least, you know, two to three years. Um, they have to have felt or understood um, what it feels like to try and get clients on their own um, and the process that you need to go through in order to get clients. Often it's the wrong process, but I need you to feel that. I need you to know what that looks like. Um, I also need you to have been able to at least get a client. So even if you've used a strange and wacky technique to do it, or if it's a friend of a friend, whatever you've done, I need you to have had a client before. I can't work. I can't now work with startups or people who've never sold to anybody um, because I find that it's very, very difficult. Then there's lots of like visions of grandeur around this idea and, you know, this business you're building and the validation of that business is really important. And I only said, listen, if you can sell one, you can sell tons. <laughs> if you can mm. sell one, you know, and so long as you haven't sold it to your mom or somebody, you know, or to a mate, then you're fine. We can do this. We can build it. No matter how niche it is, we can sell it. We can find, we will find your market and we can sell it. But I need you to have been able to sell it first. I can't work with you until I can see that you've sold one. So often that's where it begins for me. Um, I know a lot of people have, you know, I get referred, I mean, friends who don't, still don't really understand what I coach <laughs> as much as I try and explain it to them. Was we'll say, oh yeah, yeah, no, no, great. I know someone, they've just started a business in da, 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 da. And I'm like, great, tell them to come to me in a couple of years. That's when I can work with you. You know, when you've sort of figured out who you are a little bit um, and where you want to plant your feet, then we'll, you know, we'll fortify those business foundations and start to build on top of that. But I know, I mean, for myself, I've been through, goodness, ups and downs of all sorts of businesses and, you know, creative ventures and just madcap, zany activities that, you know, I, I was a, that, that typical entrepreneur that was just like at 3 a.m. in the morning, I've got an idea, I've got it, this is it. This is it. <laughs> you know, I'm that. I'm that person. Um, and I remember a couple of years ago, I had to almost sit and talk to myself. Um, and it's funny because now I'm finding I'm having this conversation with others around me as well. This and and it's about implementing this rule of no new ideas. No new ideas because I was as a creative as creatives, we're constantly coming up with new. And, you know, crazy ideas that, you know, could be the next big thing. And I had to stop myself and say, hey, no new ideas. You know, I've got a project management, a sheet in my project management system where if I have an idea, I quickly write it down just to get it out of my head. Otherwise, I'll never stop thinking about it. But I can't touch it, <laughs> you know. Um, and so I almost need to work with people who've got out of the no new ideas stage, if, if possible. Um, also, people, I, you know, in terms of, my experience and my fees and where I position myself as a coach I recognize that you know my expertise the number of years I've been involved in the industry the connections that I've made the work that I've done not only in you know the visual the commercial visual side but also in the corporate side as well is is really quite valuable so I set my fees at a level whereby if you're not really sure or you're not really that serious you might look at my fees and go well 
you know, this might not be for me right now. And those are the people that I'm trying to, to just, you know, of course not block, but at the same time, I need you to recognize that if you're about to drop this amount of money on coaching, you need to be ready for it. And show <laughs> so, up. Yeah. 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 It has to, it has to be, it has to be that I'm working with someone at the moment who was personally he charges a lot for the one-to-one work that he does and the speaking gigs that he does and he's saying well you know i'm just gonna maybe do a free group thing because i like it i'm like man you you have to charge for it you know you have to charge something for it and every time i've made the mistake of undercharging or saying i would do something for someone out of out of love because i've generally wanted to help them they just haven't shown up you know so yeah there, there has to be there has to be that investment i think um, well, I know, yeah. I know, because I've I've seen I've seen what happens when 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 you when you do someone a favour, they don't value it as much, right? So, yeah. so awesome, right? So, where can people find out more about you and and drop me your your uh, website address website. and all of that? Come yes. on, yes, quite simply, it's my name, KimberlyJ.com. <laughs> Everything's there. Visit KimberlyJ.com, start at the beginning and work your way through. You'll find yeah. everything you need in that one space. And I'm on all of the social media platforms as well. Not entirely consistently, I'll be honest. You know, I'm not the greatest at posting useless information at, you know, popular times during the day. I tend to find <laughs> I use social media to communicate things that help, or I hope hopefully they're things that help. Yeah. Um Rather than just posting for the sake of posting. But yeah, at Kimberly J on every social media platform you can imagine, I'm there as well. Cool. And it's Kimberly K Y M B E R L E E J A Y. Uh, links in the show notes. Thanks so much for um, your time. Unbelievably wide ranging conversation that I'm privileged to have had with you. So thank you. I want to say thank you as well. I do feel like I could talk to you. <laughs> about the stuff for hours and hours and hours and hours and hours and I know we don't have it but you know it just yeah it, it, it felt really nice to be able to have those conversations with a fellow creative who understands this position okay well thank you so much this episode of crisis cast 2020 was produced by me in london and kate astrakhan in michigan with artwork by ryan field and sound design by lee turner Crisis Cast 2020 is a production from Podcast Network Solutions, a full-service podcast production company who are ready to help you plan, record, produce, and promote your message with podcasting. To find out more and grab your copy of Podstar, if you're feeling pod-curious, visit us at podcastnetworksolutions.com.